0: Now, on the Boise Dev Podcast, growth and change in Idaho's capital city. We want to enable this place to grow and change in ways that are commensurate with the kind of place it is, not, not change it so dramatically that it's a completely different place.
1: We talked to Tim Keene, Boise's new director of planning and development services, on why his career led him to Idaho, on the city's zoning code rewrite and how he sees the role planning will play in shaping the city in decades to come. This episode of the Boise Dev Podcast, hosted by our senior reporter,
0: Margaret Carmel, is next. This is the Boise Dev Podcast.
1: I just want to take a minute and welcome you, um, Director Keene, to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to talk with us today.
0: Sure. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking me.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. We have so many readers that are so excited to learn about zoning and their zoning rewrite and growth. It seemed natural to to want to have a conversation with you and after you've had time to settle in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, I know this is a community that's really concerned about how it's growing and changing. So this is an important discussion.
1: Great. So why don't we start first and tell me, how did you get into urban planning? I think it's it's one of those career paths that maybe doesn't seem obvious, the firefighter, the police officer, all yeah. of those sorts of careers. How did you end up in this fight of work?
0: That's a great question to start with. When I was in college, I didn't know what I really wanted to study, and the the reason I got interested in planning is because I read the newspaper every day. I and, love it. And in the newspaper, the planning department. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the Charlotte Observer every day had multiple stories that included the planning department. So. I figured, hey, the planning department seems to be very prominent in the newspaper here. Maybe they're doing something interesting. So as a result of that, I went and did an internship at the Charlotte Mecklenburg Planning Commission and changed my major as a result of that to get into planning.
1: That's really interesting. I, I do wonder sometimes the how people find that sort of line mm-hmm. of work. So I love to ask.
0: I will say that, you know, after about... After graduating and spending a few years in planning, I wanted to get out because it seemed like such a, seemed like such a frustrating kind of, uh, you know, pretty low grade line of work. Once I did it for a little while, it did, it was, it was very frustrating to be involved in zoning because I always felt like we weren't really accomplishing much. It, it always seemed like the arguments were not helpful and 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 kind of puzzling almost. So I thought about getting out out of it and went to to get my MPA to maybe be a city manager. And at the time I was at Davidson, North Carolina and when I was in graduate school and learned though in that process what planning really is. It wasn't what I had experienced so far. So I kind of got reintroduced to it and Ended up getting a master's degree in, in architecture as a result.
1: So you became more interested in the comprehensive, long-range planning side of things, envisioning the city.
0: Well, I, I became interested in helping communities solve difficult problems, and I the planning I'd experienced before that time did not do that. It was it was not helpful. Um, it was it was basically the planning I had experienced early in my career at the beginning was was really about negotiating disagreements with people and and that wasn't interesting to me. Uh, what I learned in Davidson was that it was about much more than that. It was about how do you work with the community to to um seek to make a better place in the context of growth because every place i've worked davidson charleston Atlanta, when I was there was experiencing growth like they never had in the history of that place. So in Davidson's case, the growth of Charlotte had never come to Davidson and it scared them and they hired me as their first planner. And I experienced there this this different kind of planning, which is how do you specifically shape a city in ways that make it a better place during a period of growth like that? So in that case, for instance, we really protected the farms at the outside of town. And because that's that was central to what the place, you know, the community felt was important. We protected the farms outside of the, the town, and and had the and directed the growth to in, inside the town, with which wasn't without controversy. You know, there was plenty of people that were opposed to that. But so it wasn't like it was easier. There was some kind of magical consensus. It was. It was still. A challenge, but it was so satisfying because you were talking about specific things and how a community could make itself into something that it would be proud of versus just arguing about zoning and and comprehensive plan kinds of language, which which are so unclear to people as to what they mean in terms of the kind of a place the city will become. So, uh so it was in that experience that I understood better what planning could be, and um <clears throat> translated that to a smaller city in Charleston, which is much the size of, of Boise, and then a much larger city, Atlanta, which is a different circumstance, but was also interesting to try to to try to help Atlantans understand what the city even was, because it had been so damaged by highway construction for decades, that people had lost a connection with the physical place that is the city. So we we did our best to reintroduce them to what that is.
1: I'm interested to hear your impression of Boise versus working in the South for your whole career. So just some background about me a little bit is I spent most of my time in the Southeast of my life. Oh, wow. And so I came here to Boise and immediately noticed just so different, how different the West is. So I'm interested to hear what your take on it was coming here and understanding a city and comparing those differences.
0: Yeah. Where in the Southeast were you?
1: Um, My dad was in the military, so a lot of places. Okay. Um, Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mobile, Alabama, Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, And then I went to college in Richmond and I also lived in Chesapeake, Virginia for a while.
0: Okay. Interesting.
1: Lynchburg, Virginia.
0: Yeah. It's, 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 it's interestingly different um, Boise. I'll, I'll tell you one other, you know, Boise attracted me because it's a small city, relatively small city that's growing quickly and, and has lots of opportunity to, for the community to. Seek to make this place better through this process of growth, and and that's interesting. Unlike Atlanta, which you know had had already grown, and you were you were essentially trying to kind of repair damage that had been done. In this case, can Boise avoid you know the the mistakes of other cities and and, and all these things, which we could get into. But one other thing about the interest was was there's a fellow named Daniel Chemis. Do you know Daniel Chemis by any chance? No, no uh, I do he, He's a former mayor of Missoula, Montana. I didn't expect you to know him necessarily. But in 1990, he published a book called Community and the Politics of Place. And it's a fascinating book. If you're interested in these kinds of things, you'd be interested in Chemis's book from 1990. And, and it was about the planning process, parts of it were about the planning process and how broken it is and the public process and how broken it is and, you know, ideas about how to fix it. But another central theme of the book was how this part of the country is different than others, having to do with the notions of this frontier part of the of the United States and how people's relationship with government and with the land was different than it was in other parts of the country, certainly the Southeast. And I've, I had, that book was really important to me. When I was teaching at the College of Charleston for a number of years, I used to use it as a textbook and, and always was interested in chemists' description of this part of the country, which, you know, he's in Missoula, uh, Idaho would certainly be part of the region he was speaking to. And so that was another reason that it really interested me in coming here, recognizing the differences. So understanding that this was very different from what I was, you know, experienced with in the Southeast, that is what interested me, you know, that it is different because, you know, certainly I could have stayed in Atlanta or gone to another Southern city, but it would have been, you know, more of the same. And so I was really interested in exploring, a different part of the country. And this one specifically because of the way chemists had described it in this book.
1: That's really interesting. I'm going to have to go find yeah. that book mm-hmm. somewhere. Something that I, I think I'd like to hear more about is the mistakes of other cities that you would like to avoid. What's on your your list there?
0: Well, I think if you look at any city in America, really, um, and you and you look at their population growth within the city and within the region from... I'll take 1970, it could be 1960, but 1970 until 2020. And you look at the, put it on a a graph and chart the growth of the region and the growth of the city on separate lines, what you will see universally is the region growing astronomically. In most cases, there are places that haven't grown, of course that much during that period. But in any place that's been growing, uh, you will see the region's population, that line will go up dramatically. And you will see the city's population not grow dramatically. And in some cases, not grow at all. And in some cases, go down as the region grew substantially. And And that kind of tells you about the last generation of growth in this country when it comes to cities. And on one graph essentially describes how we created the problems that we're seeking to address and the ways in which we're trying to repair cities in this country. Uh, A place that grows in that fashion is a place that really can't solve any transportation problems. I mean, it it creates a, a, a situation that's unsolvable almost when it comes to dealing with how people get around the city affordably and safely. It creates all kinds of dynamics within the housing market that today define how cities are trying to vary in, in, a, in, a, in a way that almost no one's satisfied with address housing challenges. It, it describes the way in which nature has been destroyed in the process of those places growing. So, you know, you talk about the big headlines in cities, affordability, mobility, and I'll say sustainability or conservation. That graph tells you exactly what happened in most cities in this country and how those things, how we, how we, how we, um, how we, as much as we say we care about those things, the way we actually grew made it so difficult for cities to, to deal with those issues. And, and the question here is, can we avoid that? Because while there's been a lot of growth here and no doubt about it, the, the share of the region's population that's in the city of Boise has been going down. There's still a lot of growing to do. And, and a good example is to, you know, just cause it's, it's fairly local, this could be many cities in this country is Salt Lake city which again, the city's population has not grown at all really over that period of time, the regions exploded. And what does that do to the natural environment? What does it do to how you deal with housing and and mobility? And so I think those are the issues that are central to uh, the question whether Boise can chart a different course and whether this is a community that, that, understands that relationship between the physical place and the prosperity of the people and can therefore translate that understanding and care into solutions that other cities have not come to.
1: I want to get a little more specific because I think I know what you're talking about, but I want to make sure the listeners do.
0: I try to be vague. It's it's It can be helpful, but go ahead.
1: Oh, I, <laughs> I, I get, get that. I get that. Mad respect. But as far as... Issues with sprawl being more difficult. What is it about sprawling development that causes problems? Because I feel like there's a misconception. Maybe I don't even want to use that word. There's a conception that an apartment complex or a townhouse complex is always going to be inherently more expensive for local governments to deal with, more problematic for neighbors, cause more problems. And I'm hearing you talk. It doesn't sound like that's the case.
0: In in many respects, that's the case. I mean, the first one that people might be interested in is that it's it's financially it's it's a it's a huge drain on people. You know, the 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 more you you spread out at relatively low densities, and even in in places that are suburban places that have apartments and townhouses and these kinds of things. That's still relatively low density over the landscape and you're spreading it out further and further from the center of your place, whatever that is, whether it's Boise or some other community in this region. You're talking about a pattern of growth that you you just financially can't support or that it's going to become more and more difficult to support. And for the people that live in that that place to financially support the public services that are necessary to to. to for those places to be served in, in any kind of way having to do with public safety and water and sewer and, you know, uh, solid waste, all those services that people expect of their government is just, and there's many studies around how, how financial, how financially it's so debilitating to communities to serve low density sprawl. I mean, it's just, so the, the financial aspect is, 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 Obviously, a huge part of it. Another part, though, too, is just, especially in a place like this, where I think people, most people, probably in in this region, would acknowledge that nature is kind of important. <laughs> we happen to live, in, we happen to live in a place that has a lot of natural beauty, whether whether it's the foothills and the mountains, or or the desert, um, or uh, other places in in this region. And there's no question but that as you spread development at low densities out across the landscape, welcome to Phoenix or, you know, whatever. You, you name the city that has, has grown in that fashion and you see how nature is treated and, and what it does to the sustainability of that place. Um, another part of it, too, so, you know, the financial piece of it, the impact that it has on nature Another part of it is, you know, people tend to get concerned about density and and feel as though density simply results in things that they find to be negative, you know, usually that might be traffic for instance. Density is is an interesting thing for people to deal with in the sense that you have I'm sure been to dense places, most people have probably been to dense places in their lives that they found to be beautiful and incredible, you know, incredibly satisfying and wonderful places to be. Um, And they're, and and that's because they're, they're intentionally designed. And then you go, you find density in places where it isn't. And it's, it's spread out in a very haphazard uh, fashion around highways. And of course, that's an environment that most people would look at and say "This, this isn't this isn't making my city better. So, you know, those two places might be very consistent in terms of their density. It's just the way that that density is, is laid out and designed makes all the difference in the world. And and it impacts your ability to deal with housing affordability, for instance. You know, if if everything about development is seen as negative in a community because of the way it's designed and laid out then it gets very difficult to to pursue the kind of supply of housing that a place in demand needs. And so I think sometimes we underestimate the impact of poorly designed, poorly laid out development on the, the ability of the community to support the housing that it needs to be affordable. And these are all issues that Boise is in the midst, as you know, better than anybody, of grappling with. And so I just I feel like it's a, a, a pivotal time for the city and, and the region, of course, but I'll just stick with the city to try to navigate those things in ways that, you know, where we're learning from what happened in other cities and seeking to find very different solutions than the ones that really were pursued in the mid to late 20th century.
1: So how does the zoning code rewrite? fit into wanting to solve these problems and go past some of these mistakes other cities made. Yeah.
0: I think it's a very important element of it. It's certainly not all of it, but it's an important one because it creates the regulations around which people are enabled to develop property. So what's important about the zoning rewrite, most important to me as it relates to avoiding some of those mistakes is that that it, that we, that we, that we, propose a zoning ordinance that is consistent with the kind of city that we're trying to shape. So, for instance, that we're, as I was speaking of earlier, that we're thinking of density as something that is our friend and in, in, in the sense that we're trying to utilize density to create the kind of environments that we're seeking. So downtown's an obvious one, you know, uh, but, but other places too, you know, whether it's A a corridor that we are seeking to provide better transit service on, or if we have certain places in the city where we're seeking to enable denser mixed use development. So it's designed to be very walkable and and more like a downtown environment, but in other parts of the city. Let's strategically assign the zoning densities and design requirements to those places. And then in other places that isn't aren't like that and are going to be, for any kind of foreseeable future, future, more auto-oriented, then we have a different set of regulations for those. And so I think the process we're going through right now with the zoning rewrite is to customize the zoning proposal to the physical place that is Boise. Another example of that is that we acknowledge that we've got different uh types of single family neighborhoods they're not all the same some of them have larger lots some of them have smaller lots and that's okay that's normal for a city to have that so let's not treat everything the same let's not use a one-size-fits-all kind of approach let's try to dig deeper and get to what's the nature of our neighborhood specifically and how can we seek to allow them to change but in ways that are different than each other you know um so um, so as much as we can, seek to uh, create a zoning ordinance that is making what you want the city to become easier to do through the regulations that you create.
1: Something that I think I, I should definitely get some specifics on here is, so does that mean you want single family homes in Boise to disappear?
0: No, it's the opposite of that, really. I mean, what I was describing is, uh, for instance, you know, when the Initial. First of all, in any single family zone in the city of Boise today, you can do two units. That's permitted by right today, which is somewhat unusual. Not not all cities have that. In a lot of cities, single family, single family. It's only one unit. It's not the case in Boise. We haven't seen, though, a lot of of redevelopment of single family into two units of of housing in single family in recent years. Uh, but what the proposed ordinance and in the initial rounds of discussion were were doing was was looking at basically consolidating the single family zones into we have three now into two, and then shrinking the lot sizes and allowing four units in the same way within all single family. So that's really almost bringing it into one single family zone versus having the 3 that we have today. And I think that's the wrong approach. And and so I I really do think it's to this point and that's why I said we need to acknowledge that it's it's not only it's not only acceptable, it's it's preferred to have a city of of different types of neighborhoods. We 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 don't want a city of one type. We we want a city that has a diversity of neighborhoods. So so look at how we can how we can kind of surgically Permit some increase in density within single family, but not in a uniform, you know, uh, kind of one size fits all kind of fashion. So, so no, I don't. I don't think that this is about eliminating single family in any way. I think it's 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 about acknowledging the types of single family we have. Ideally, we could get to a place where uh, we've got a lot of consensus around how we can allow some surgical improvement or not improvements, but increases in density within single family such that people are very supportive of that. And and we could make it easy to accomplish because right now, I think one of the reasons we don't get a lot of two fam two two units on single family is because the process is onerous. You know, it's, it would, it could be debilitating even to do to an accessory dwelling in the city. It's not an easy task. So, we as a community, the goal here is that we as a community come together around that city we're seeking to build and what the zoning regulations would be to support that such that we can we can allow that kind of development to be simpler for people. And uh, it doesn't take so long, doesn't cost so much. I mean- you know, our processes alone can can be debilitating for someone even that wants to build an accessory dwelling unit. It could be so costly that not many people can reasonably do it. We, we don't want that kind of environment, I don't think. I mean, that makes it very difficult for people other than developers, you know, to, to really build and participate in the housing
1: market. I, I'm interested to hear that you're not convinced that every every lot should allow up to a fourplex. So are you saying that you're gonna have some changes to that zoning code rewrite when you see it next, another draft?
0: Well, we're looking at that. You know, that's one of the issues that really came out in the public sessions that held and you know this, you know, that that were in association with modules one and two was a lot of concern about about this consolidation of single family where we had three down to two and and really, even the two, there wasn't a huge difference between them. So um almost folding it into one single family type, losing the three that we have and and having the uniform four in every single family, a lot of concern about that. And and I think there was legitimate concern about it. Um what what I feel is is was lacking to some degree in the first round, both in one and two, was this customization to the physical place that is Boise it was in in my mind kind of taking some some stock you know approaches to zoning and applying them to Boise without actually looking closely at what are the physical circumstances that we're dealing with and 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 you know doing that is just something that I would advise against in every circumstance you know we we don't we want to Enable this place to grow and change in ways that are commensurate with the kind of place it is not, not change it so dramatically that it's a completely different place. And so, yeah, the answer kind of is, is when we come back, we'll have some different ideas about how to do, how to do that, still achieve the, the goals that we're seeking in terms of affordability, but do it in a way that is responsive to what people were concerned about. Do
1: you have any hints? I ha-
0: I have no hints, but no but hints. we but we will we will come back and have additional public meetings soon in the next couple months to start going through the suggestions that we're making as to changes.
1: Great, Well, I, I look forward to hearing more about that for sure. Um, one thing that I was interested to hear about um, last week in your address to city council was you mentioned patients would be helpful um, mm-hmm. in dealing with internal, Kind of um, the internal workings of the department. What are some of the things you're needing patience with that you're wanting to change and make better here?
0: Well, I think one is you know we've we've had in the you know this but in the last you know year to eighteen months or so the planning department has lost some staff, and so while we don't have a an overwhelming number of vacancies, we have vacancies in very important areas. Like the the people, the planners that are involved in zone, in zoning and and helping people through the zoning process, we have multiple vacancies there, which really hurts the, the the staff that we have working in that area is really stretched to the limit at this point, and they're very talented, but they need a lot of help. And so, just yeah, as you know, many businesses are experiencing issues with recruitment and retention of people and. And just the workforce that exists here. And so that's one issue is, is recruitment, hiring of people such that we've got enough staff just to deal with the volume of issues that we're dealing with. And that'll take a little while. So, so there's just having the, the people necessary to deal with this period of, of incredible growth. Another thing is that we need some additional, um, skills here, I think um, one of the things I think I was speaking to when it came to that issue of patients is is really building up our mobility team. you know we have we have people that that are involved in transportation so-called in the in the sense that they uh, are part of the regulatory process mostly when it comes to, Transportation mobility related issues, and and we we have to really expand the capacity of that group because one of the things that's going to be so important, of course, in Boise, is that the city develops around um, walking, biking, and transit usage. And you know, we are a relatively small city with a a, a particular kind of transit system. There are plans to improve that service of the existing system uh better types of service in the future i wouldn't under underestimate the importance of that in a growing city um again trying to avoid the mistakes of other cities you know seeking to uh, utilize uh, non-driving forms of transportation as much as possible and that means that the city's got to be in position to uh, develop the public spaces of this city, streets in particular, but as you know, the pathways plan for Boise is is a is an exciting one, and it's one that around which I think Boise should be thinking of designing itself as a city as it grows, and that means we have to have the the skill to do that. So, another part of the patience. Uh, message I was delivering was we really need to, to, to develop that team a little bit so that we can lead on mobility in public spaces in Boise because it's really the difference between success and failure when it comes to mobility in Boise. People you know there are people of course in our community that, that don't have a choice and they they rely on transit and, and that that's a, a essential reason as to why transit's important. But if to get people that do have choices to choose to not drive and actually walk, ride your bike or use transit, that decision is almost entirely based on the quality of the public spaces. If if your streets and and other public spaces are safe and enjoyable to be within, then you're much more likely to choose to not drive. That's why I say it's the difference between success and failure when it comes to mobility is the quality of your public spaces and we have to shift from just being a regulator when it comes to transportation and shift to being more of a creator and and now is the time to do that if we if we wait any longer we we will have missed an opportunity but but again building that team will take a little bit of time.
1: Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. I'm Curious to see how things unfold with the pathway plan and the, the projects as they roll out. I want to talk a little bit about um, historic preservation. That is a big sticking point in probably any city, you know, and particularly here with our rapid growth. How do you? How does that desire to protect older buildings fit into your vision for Boise?
0: Well, I think it's essential. I mean, I you know. We, uh, old buildings, um, are part of what makes the city, what it is and, and, and are helpful in so many ways. I mean, part of it is just the protecting the characteristics of Boise that make it different than other cities. Part of it is, you know, not, not tearing down buildings that with their reuse, you know, uh, ideally we could, we could we could produce more affordable spaces, whether they're commercial or residential spaces. So there's a, there's so much value to historic buildings. I think, you know, we have to be creative about how we work around historic buildings, number one, and there's plenty of opportunities to do that. You know, you look at Charleston, for instance, where I spent a lot of my career in oldest historic district in America, 1931. We had a a really significant design review process in association with the historic district but because of the the commitment to historic preservation the city is thriving i mean the, the the commitment to historic preservation in that case and this isn't just Charleston it's other cities can be among the 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 ways in which the community distinguishes itself and 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 makes it a more uh, appealing place uh, for people that live here now and live here in the future, I just think our historic buildings are essential the 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 one thing I will say is is that we and we 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 revamped our our board of architectural review process in Charleston towards the end of my tenure there and we had to be careful about our processes that they're not suffocating for people you know if we have historic districts in Boise, of course, as many cities do. I think we have to be careful to focus on in those historic districts what really matters and not overreach when it comes to the regulations. So, for instance, obviously within a historic district, the most important thing is that you that you protect buildings from demolition. That should be pretty clear. That's on the very clear end of the spectrum of regulations. But you can get into areas that really are just the public doesn't need to be getting into with regard to how people use their property. So I think one thing that we just want to be careful about is that we calibrate the the degree of regulations in historic districts properly, because there is a point where you get to where you're overreaching. And so the answer really is the the old buildings, historic buildings in particular are fundamental, I think, to the future of, of Boise. I just Put a little check mark there to say, let's be careful about you know concentrating on what's most important and not overreaching when it comes to the regulatory side of it.
1: Sometimes things that I hear um, about development and growth is that growth cannot happen while you also protect historic assets. And I'm hearing you say that there's a way for a city to grow and you can keep your historic your, you can keep your soul.
0: I mean, I, I absolutely believe that. I mean, you know, again, there, there's so much opportunity for growth in in Boise without touching a single historic building. It's 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 phenomenal. I mean, I, I mean, I go around the city and I think we could accommodate all the all the growth that that the the whole region needs in a pretty small footprint in the city. Um, We're not going to because that's not the nature of of the condition, of course. But but we there is plenty of room to save old buildings and and yet accommodate the, the demand for growth that we have in the city. And again, I think Charleston's as good a city as any in this country to say to show that not only is it possible, it makes your city more distinctive and and in greater demand if you're careful about protecting old buildings.
1: I I wanna transition from talking about historic issues to just a general feeling I think a lot of cities are experiencing now with anxiety of not wanting to change. I hear that a lot of folks just say, well, I don't want, I'm okay with the current zoning. I just don't want anything to change because I want things to stay the same. And And the through line that I keep hearing from you in this interview is things have to change. We have to change to meet, to rise to yeah. the, the challenges of today. Can you talk about like, what's your response to folks who say, yeah. just pause it, just pause everything.
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing is, is, as you know, is, is the idea that things won't change is just, you know, that's a fallacy. I mean, we, under any circumstance, things will change. I mean, you, you can, you can take whatever approach you want to growth, but whatever that approach is, uh Things are going to change. And that's the only thing that we know is going to happen. The choice isn't between something and nothing. The choice is between something and something else because it's going to change. And I think for me, the the and again, this has been my experience in every city that I've worked in where they were experiencing such significant and unprecedented growth, is the the challenge is the level of discussion about. What it is that we're seeking to build as a city is very low. You know the 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 mechanism of the comprehensive plan for cities is is not a not a very successful one when it comes to cities. Yet we we keep employing it over and over again for some reason. It's a very interesting phenomenon that you we keep mean like
1: nationwide like planning. Yeah, West I mean America in, in, in any city. I
0: mean okay. it's 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 an interesting thing. So. Among the things we need to do in Boise, I think, is get much more specific about what it is we're seeking to build as a city. And so a, a part of that is, is to begin with a process of trying to determine what our optimal population would be. We, we know there are projections with regard to how the region will grow right over the next 15, 20 years. And the the regional agency is is doing projections like that. So we have a projection as to how the region should go. The question we are going to ask is, over that period of time, optimally, what would the city's population be? As I said earlier, Boise's population has been going down as as a percentage of the region for a number of years. We need to look at a methodology around where... Where would we like to to take the city from a population standpoint, again, optimally over that period of time? And then how would that population optimally be distributed around the city? How much of it would be downtown? How much of it is in different you know areas of the city? How much of it is is along transit corridors and so forth so that we just know what it what is what is it? in terms of the, what size city are we designing for? Essentially, we need to know that we don't know that right now because comprehensive plans tend to be basically some kind of distribution of rights for people and, and statements about what people think the city should be like words. We should be a sustainable city with a high quality of life. And then this kind of distribution of land uses and rights and things. That's not good enough. You know, I mean, we need to actually get to specifically what is it the outcome that we're we're designing for? Because without that, we're just we're in the dark as it relates to these kinds of regulations. People have a hard time understanding how is this change making the city better? So I think it starts with answering that question, what size city are we designing for? And then once you know that and how that population might be distributed, you start to look at how does the physical city then accommodate that growth? How do we, again, back to where do we have denser places? Where do we have less dense places? How is nature protected in that process? I mean, one of the things that has to be paramount for us is that Whatever size city we're designing for, and we need to figure that out, that nature is protected and repaired in the process and that people are living in environments where walking and riding your bike are a real option for more and more people. That is so critical to this thing. You know, I mean, if you could have gone back decades to these cities that have become so sprawling and almost impossible to serve from a transportation standpoint and said at that time, an outcome that must occur here is that we must ensure that the people that come here and live here, more and more of them can walk and ride their bike and use transit as a real option every day, then places would be entirely different. And and that's something that we must be committed to or else we're going down the path that others have gone down. Um, And then, you know, as it relates to the the distribution of the population. What are the building types that we need to to utilize within Boise in order to get to those uh, that optimal condition and uh, and then given the resources that we have in terms of land, how do we deploy those different building types? So all this kind of specificity around. We're trying to design, we're we're building this city specifically, and then this is the physical place that we have to accommodate that population, and we design it such that it becomes an even more beautiful city, and we address these issues that we're seeking to solve, like affordability and mobility and, and again, protection of nature. That's the process that we have to go through, and it, it's a process that comprehensive plans don't give you the opportunity to go through. And so one of the things and this is just to your question about change, Margaret, because, as I said, change is part of life. I mean, this is we don't have the option of saying no change building, you know, decide, deciding that we're not allowing. You can't, of course, decide that more people won't be able to live here. But even if you could, that would be a negative thing. (laughs) I mean, Atlanta didn't do that, but nobody came to Atlanta while the region grew dramatically, and that's why it's the mess it is. I mean, the growth—the
1: I mean, city proper,
0: yeah—the city proper. Sorry, Atlanta, I didn't, you know. But but the 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 opportunity here is the growth. To you know, when you look at the, the cities that 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 we look at and and are and say we don't want to become. The opportunity we have to see the opportunity as the growth, and and that we it will give us the chance to build the city that will be distinctive, even when it's much larger. Because I go back to those graphs I mentioned. Right. When you talk about change, when you look at Salt Lake City, it's a flat line. What do you mean change? The city, congratulations, the city didn't grow any over that sixty-year period. But look at the place. I mean, all of these incredible urban challenges are there completely. And the city was flatlined. We have to change that graph, you know, here. And not just for numbers sake. This isn't about the data. It's not about the science. It's about the art of a city. You know, I mean, what Boise has is an amazing environment that it sits within. So you have a condition where you've got this really interesting relatively urban place where people are and you have nature. Well, let's protect both in, in this process of change that we are confronted with because we don't get a chance to say no to change. All we get a chance to do is use it as a way to shape a, this place into something even much better. So we just have to, we, we just have to give people that opportunity. I think Margaret is, is the answer. We got to give people the opportunity to see that more clearly, and and get behind, because if we don't get get behind making that city as fast as we can, if we if we're not able to do that, then we're definitely going down the road of other cities.
1: Well, I think that that's a wrap on our serious questions. I I want to end with one fun question here before I let you go. What I thought been- that was
0: the fun question. Oh,
1: that's the fun question. Okay. <laughs> Um, what's been your favorite restaurant or place to visit in Boise since you moved here?
0: Well, um, you know what I'm going to actually answer is in a restaurant, of course. But I have to say that the the Snake River is is the most interesting thing I've ever seen. Now, this is people listening might go, well, duh, of course it is. I mean, <laughs> but coming from the southeast where nature is very subtle, you know, it takes a while to kind of get under your skin. I just, the, the, the drama of the Snake River region with the wide valleys and then the deep canyons and the variety of that is just, I mean, I, I'm finding that I, I try to go out there now every, every weekend just to experience something different when it comes to that part of this particular region. So, so I will, I will say that. Um,
1: it's a great answer.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs>
1: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast, and um, I've been speaking with uh, new planning director for the City of Boise, Tim Keene. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Margaret.